Welcome to our podcast. I'm Josh Way. I'm Dan Hammer. And we're here to revisit a movie that at least one of us has seen before and find out how it holds up. How are you, Dan? I'm well. I'm sitting here in my red jumpsuit and my shear with my shears. Yeah. What? what <laughs> you saw something good this week. No, what do you, I didn't see anything. Oh, I'm no, sorry. No, I, I, of course, I, <laughs> I, I saw us as you did. I did. We were both very excited. And I wasn't disappointed. No, neither was I. In fact, I would go so far as to say it was a privilege to watch us in a movie theater with other people. Jordan Peele would create meaning out of that statement. No, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I don't think I understand it still. I will need to see it a couple times. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how about we give some quick spoiler-free impressions of, of what we think of the movie, and then if you want to, we can, we can get into it. I do want to get into it. I want to spoil it. All right. Well, before that, before that, give us a, a non-spoilery soundbite. What did you like about it? I love Jordan Peele's mind and the madness that he brings. I feel like with a lesser artist, this could have just been a disastrous howler, you know, exact same story, even yeah, exact same script. And in his hands, it was so compelling. There were moments that because I'm just a, a jerk in the theater, like I wanted to laugh and I'm in a full theater and no one is laughing at all. Like they're completely going mm. with the, with the zaniness. Yeah. Um, Lupita Nyong'o is an amazing actress. This performance is just great. And I think going to be an iconic horror performance. Do you agree? I do. It will also be overlooked for awards. Of course. Not not unlike Tony Collette. As they tend to be. I mean, Tony Collette had a lot of people behind her. Who knows if uh, Nyong'o will benefit a little bit from the conversation that welled up about the, you know, the legitimacy of good horror performances. Yeah. And this is, I believe her first lead role, if I'm not mistaken. Huh? Yeah. It's not like I would say her character is one of my all time favorites or something like that. Yeah. But what she was able to do with it, I think was pretty fearless. I, yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed watching this. This is an entertain, a thoroughly entertaining movie. I told you ahead of time how I'm kind of a little bit of a, of a wussy boy when it comes to horror movies. And I was getting nervous because this looked downright menacing and horrifying uh, in the trailers and promotional materials. And it is, but it's also so entertaining that from the moment it started, I didn't have any like looking back. I was fully engaged. I loved every minute of it. Uh, even when it gets really weird, which we'll, I guess we'll get into in a second, but I love what the family's doing in in the movie uh lupita and winston duke and the kids i like what uh, elizabeth moss and tim heidecker are doing and i think you're right it, it's kind of frustrating how talented jordan peele is as a filmmaker that he's making movies with this kind of polish and mastery out of the gate two features this solid right away is unbelievably impressive I agree. I mean, this is better than Shyamalan, though I did like, you know, Unbreakable as a second to Sixth Sense. I think it was the second to Sixth Sense, wasn't it? Yes. It's not his second film, but it's his second big thriller. Breakout after yeah, since right. being famous, right? Right. Yeah. I thought that Get Out 
worked a little better for me on the whole. And Get Out was tidier. It was a smaller movie. There was less going on metaphorically, and it was more focused. I feel like Us creates a humongous universe with so many unanswered questions from this movie. I feel like there could be a second or even a third movie that would explore more of this world. Yeah, and I think this is probably where we transition into spoiler country. Uh, Well, you know, I see a whole lot of videos spring up uh, whenever a big movie like this comes out on YouTube. Immediately, there's us ending explained. I saw like eight of those in one visit to YouTube. And the funny thing to me is the ending of us is an ending of us explained video. This is a movie that provides its own uh, explanation. Did you think so? Well, I mean, it, it, it attempts to, there's a lot of late uh, revelatory exposition Uh, And then on top of that, there's additional revelation. So I guess that's the part where, um, again, this movie is thoroughly entertaining. It's amazing to experience. I want to see it again, and I think it will be always be a favorite. That said, I agree with you that Get Out is much tighter, thematically uh, penetrable. (laughs) You know what's going on and why. I don't know. I don't. I feel like the, the explanations complicate the fun that we just had. And then the additional revelations make it even weirder. But I felt like the twist almost redeemed some of the uh, explanation for me. Even though it raises innumerable, complicated, hard-to-answer questions. Yes. The twist, I think ultimately, I will say, was a brilliant idea. There are parts of it that I just don't understand from a story perspective. Yeah. So we're in spoiler land now. Yes, sure. Okay. so If you haven't seen us, fast forward a bit. Right. So she is suffering from some serious repressed memory in order for what happened to have happened. Yes. Right? Right. Right. That that has to be what it is. Yeah. And that's the premise to begin with before we're in twist territory. But then it must be even deeper than we realized. So when I look back to the opening scene on at the shore, I I don't wouldn't call this cheating from the directorial standpoint, but it's right on the edge for me that we feel like we're following this little girl and we feel like we have her point of view and then cutting to present day Adelaide to me wasn't quite right. You know what I mean? Because that wasn't her point of view. Right, I see what you're saying. So it's it's part of a giant misdirect, the entire movie being a misdirect. Right, and I mean, I guess the final, is the final shot seeing the other little girl's face and then cutting to Adelaide? I mean, that might be fair. Right. I just don't remember the order there. Right. Because no, we, weren't fo- we weren't following her coming yeah. up. Well, here's what I mean when I say that the twist helps not justify, but it helps take some of the air out of some of the, the too heavy exposition so we find out that we get a very specific real world nuts and bolts explanation of what is going on who these tethered people are where they live where they come from and what's going on uh to the point where it seems impractical and impossible and it, it takes some of the wonder out of it the idea that we've been following 
the the other girl and that there's this repressed memory of being of of Adelaide herself being trapped down there among the tethered to me that might explain why she had a spark that kind of ignited the tethered to aspire to something more because she was a girl who had a soul or whatever the difference is between you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. so I'm not saying that it makes sense out of everything. I'm just saying that idea that real Adelaide's soul and personality and spark go down in there and creates, she ends up leading this revolt, essentially. That last minute twist, even though it's got a little bit of huh going on, it, it to me, it kind of could also work in the, in the story's favor in that way. I think what I would need, and perhaps this would be revealed in another film, I would need to understand the rules of the tethered a little better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not like they said something, the film said something wrong or misleading. I feel the film just didn't really explain the rules of the world of the tethered because some of them appear to be free. And at that one point after the dance, it appears that a lot of them did a lot of things on their own volition, like approaching her as if she's a savior down there. Right. You know, they're, they seem no longer tethered in that moment. Yeah. And if this experiment has gone awry and it's abandoned, who knows how quickly they might be able to break out of whatever spell has been cast there, if only they become aware, mm-hmm. you know. But then I don't get from the beginning when the switch took place, how supposedly the Adelaide that was up on the boardwalk is walking toward this mirror room, bringing up, bringing the girl red or former red mm-hmm. up this up the escalator though it's only a down escalator right you know yeah and and they meet in that hall of mirrors that makes sense to me that yeah just this serendipitous thing happened so it was her curiosity that hurt. ended up dooming her and and bringing the other girl toward her right and then once the switch took place so how was the girl from below able to like knock her out mm-hmm. and then use her agency to bring her down and right. tether her to that bed, literally, mm-hmm. and then go back up by her own agency. Right. And from that point on, is she now controlling the other girl? Right. So does it have to do with where you are that if you're in that space, you're controllable? Yeah. Because it doesn't seem to be with who you are because they switched so easily. Right. And I feel like the, ability of the regular human to manipulate the behavior of the tethered that only happens a couple times when it's convenient and then it doesn't happen so there's when uh the the boys his name jason he he realizes that he can you know manipulate his tethered and uh does away with him in that fashion so but i feel like that was like oh that's a big deal but then they don't do that. But so it explains a few things that the movie needs to do, but it's not like a hard and fast rule that can be exploited. I, yeah, I don't, I guess right. I'm agreeing with you that I, I want to know more about the rule. Although I don't, I want to know, I want, I wish that I, I feel like it's a can of worms. I almost wish I knew less so that the, the entertaining portion of the movie, that middle hour when they're just running away from, you know, evil zombie versions of themselves, that's what, that's the joy that this movie offers to me. One of the best sequences to me was the flashback of the walk on the boardwalk from the vantage point of the girl below. 
mm-hmm. where you're watching everyone do the stuff at the carnival out of context. Yeah. In down there. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fascinating. And at the same time, how, how is she free and how are they not? And is right. it proximity? And these are things that are just not answered. You know, if somebody who was on the boardwalk in Santa Cruz then flies to China or something, do right. they lose connection? Or is that person still mirroring what they're doing underneath the ground? And it, what is the geog- the geography? All the questions you just asked. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. confusing. And the deeper you get into it, I think the less fun it is. Yeah, in that case, I would rather know less about how big it is. Because, yeah. of course, we have to suspend our disbelief. Of course, it's impossible because there's no you know chicken and egg story. When did this begin such that procreation started happening? I would almost prefer that there be some like magic or mystical or religious element right. that was unleashed onto a science experiment. Because if you have two people who are tethers, you know, of each other, yeah, and above the there's a coupling, the two people below can imitate the mechanics of the sexual act, even. But it's impossible that they would be able to procreate a child who is an exact match of the people above. Right. That's an impossibility. Yet it happened, and it happened right. twice, at least to this, to um, to Red. Yeah. And it happened with her parents. To you know. Right. To her, this doesn't make any sense. And who is overseeing the experiment? Do they have shadows? Wouldn't they be too close to them? Right. You have to like let let all that go. And Red has one throwaway line. They say that they created us or something like that. Like who you mm-hmm. know who. So this, this, is it just a small group? Is it, are we looking at the extent of this experiment? I'm saying this could be, you know, hands across America territory where perhaps that chain actually did go from coast to coast somehow. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I guess that's, if we're wondering about the scope, those final shots of the movie, they tell us that there are at least thousands of tethered, if not millions. Right. I understand the instinct to want to explain. I guess he had, I don't know if the explanation is to justify the twist or if the twist is to have fun with the explanation, but uh, there's a whole lot going on, probably more than I need. Yeah. I am very willing to take the underworld at face value as far as how many, how many people are there, how they got there, what the science experiment was, I think that's kind of unimportant. Mm-hmm. I am interested in how the relationship between the person above and the person below works. And I wish right. there would have been just a little bit more exposition about that. The other unfortunate thing from my point of view about all of this exposition stuff, all this third act stuff is that we're really everyone's talking about the mechanics of the story instead of the themes. Right. And I wonder what I haven't, I realize right now that I haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about, I mean, it's crazy with the, the, the Bible verse and the, Oh, uh, red saying, who are we? We're Americans. What? <laughs> like there's a whole lot of interesting stuff with duality and, and Jordan Peele is also specifically saying, I've seen multiple interviews with him where he immediately says, oh, this move, this one's not about race. Really? Because I felt like it is to some extent. It feels like it is. 
to some extent, I think that race intersects with what he's going for. And I mean, it's his film, so right. whatever he says, it's sure. about, you know, right. to him. It's oh, about, he's incorrect. Though, I want to inform him. <laughs> though, I think he leaves, this is part of what's brilliant and what will make this, I think, ultimately a classic film, is there are so many ways you could approach it and so many things you could see in it. Um, I was reading a piece where someone was interpreting the whole um, underworld as the modern day GOP. Like that's why it's red. Mm-hmm. And these are people who feel left behind and lost and forgotten. Mm-hmm. And all they want to do is build a wall that will do absolutely nothing except be a monument to the fact that once they were mm-hmm. here, you know, that they can finally be seen. Yeah. And a lot of death will happen. Yeah. Toward, right. toward that end. Right. And I don't necessarily think that's what Peel was going for. But no, yeah, but it feels I can, like I can see that. Yeah. And it feels like anything, any art made at this moment is going to have some of those themes and realities bundled up in it. I did, I guess, on a very basic level, this is a story about a crisis point where the worst versions of ourselves are threatening to take over reality. And it's kind of a decisive moment. So I felt like in that way, it feels very much like a movie of this time uh, without getting into the specifics of it. Just the idea of, oh, the ugly version of myself is coming for me. And what am I going to do about it? Yeah, then there's a real layer of tragedy because you can see the family that we meet first and see them as being the victims of these menaces that have intruded upon their their safety and their security. When it turns out that they, that one of them, at least, uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character, actually wronged the person who is now coming for her, mm-hmm. even though she doesn't remember doing that. Yeah. So there, there's more tragedy than simply a you know a malevolent right. figure who comes to kill you. So it's it's personal demons catching up with with us. Yeah. It, it can be. Huh. I. I think Peel. I think was talking about why he used scissors mm-hmm. and talking about how scissors are both two pieces that have to be one in order to work together. And yet they tear things apart. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that's a, that is an interesting duality. Yeah. They're perfectly safe and everyday items in your house. Mm-hmm. And they're incredibly dangerous when you use them in that, you know, yeah. in a murderous way. Well, I, I liked it. I liked it too. Is um is us a uh, U.S. reference? Oh, uh, quite possibly. Oh, and here's something else that I that completely flew over my head that I heard a, a, a critic talking about that there are some structural and visual and thematic references to the movie Them, which is the, a, oh. a giant ant movie from the '50s, like a, a horror movie. But uh, that's an interesting thing that us being us and them kind of being a, yeah uh, too yeah i i just how fun it is to be able to um see this fresh see it new and and be the first people to talk about it because it probably will be around for a while and i can't wait to see what peel does next yeah it's one of those event movies that it's really exciting to be a part of the you know opening weekend and you have to see it in the opening weekend or it's going to get spoiled yeah and that's kind of the fun yes and the teenagers in the Thursday night screening I was at were vaping and making out during the movie, which made it extra special. Vaping. Yeah. Wow. Need to unleash their shadows. Yeah. Hope I'm. Hope I. 
I'm just assuming they were confronted and uh, untethered. Here's a twist. They are the shadows who've already murdered those teenagers. Yikes. I know. Well, that's a bummer. They they didn't deserve that. I know. All right. Shall we take a break? And uh, we're going to come back and talk about a movie. I like movies. I like movies also. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Holds Up. Uh, we are going to be re- revisiting movies that at least one of us has seen. And this week we're revisiting a movie from 20 years ago that we have both seen and both have had uh, intense opinions about. It's American Beauty, directed by Sam Mendes. And do you want to give us a uh, brief little introduction to American Beauty, Dan? Sure. So I saw American Beauty when I was 18 and a freshman in college, and it was probably the first movie I ever saw when I knew you, and maybe the first movie we ever talked about. (laughs) So. Wow. I know. I know. So we recall, it is the story of Lester Burnham, played by Kevin Spacey, and his family, Annette Bennings, his wife, and uh, Thora Birch is his daughter. And he's a pretty unhappy person, pretty miserable. Um, she is a perfectionist and wants to have a beautiful sort of life at the expense, perhaps, of relationships around her. And madness ensues, and things don't end well, really, for any of them. No, not as such. No, but it was a uh, pretty big movie in 1999 and is the uh, Oscar winner. Best picture. The following spring for Best Picture, Oscar for uh, Spacey, as well as Sam Mendes and Alan Ball, screenwriter, and Conrad Hall, cinematographer. So this is an interesting one to revisit for a number of reasons. Uh, for me, revisiting American Beauty is a sort of it's it's really about revisiting myself because twenty years ago when this movie came out, I was a very different person. I would describe myself as a, I was, you know, a a film lover and I was into the arts and I was a man of the world as far as I was concerned. But a movie like this kind of activated my uh, moralizing, evangelical, judgmental, conservative kind of uh, attitudes. So I was not a fan of this movie 20 years ago. I thought it was objectionable. I thought it was cheap. I thought it was unfair. I thought it was titillating in all the wrong ways. And uh, boy, was I incorrect. I didn't know that those were your objections at the time. I remember being so mad at you for not liking it. (laughs) I probably, yeah, I mean, this is me looking back honestly at my feelings. I probably said it was pretentious. That's probably... Uh, I probably dismissed it that way because it made me so uncomfortable that I just said, oh, oh, another navel-gazing, anti-suburban. Thematically now, I look at it and I'm like, well, this is, you know, this this movie's got a lot of truth to tell. But, yeah, I I was in a very different place back then. So watching it fresh, it's not so much for me about how the movie holds up. It's about how I hold up. And I didn't hold up very well in this particular (laughs) scenario. You're your regular Chris Cooper describing. I, I am. That really bothered me, and I guess we'll 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 go through that. But his character really bothered me. The idea that every time there was a conservative 
uh, homophobe. Of course, I would have put quotes around that word back then. Uh, <laughs> that you know, it's oh, he's a closet case. Of course, how convenient. <laughs> I feel I I don't see it that way now. I feel Do you have like, something uh, to tell me. I I don't. <laughs> but. I feel like the same movie could be made in 2019, except the Chris Cooper character would be like the main character. <laughs> There'd be a lot more focus on his deal because uh, of current events. I'm coming at this movie kind of fresh. I, I hadn't seen it since then. I, I, don't, I may, This may not be true. I may have revisited it at some point because I have some weird behind the scenes information in my brain that I don't know where I got it unless I watched a documentary or listened to the commentary. Here's the thing with this movie. I'm a different person. I was thoroughly entertained. I enjoyed revisiting the movie. I do still have, I don't know if I have issues with it. I simply have reactions to it and they run the gamut. Uh, Ultimately, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a successful movie. But uh, my issues with it and my questions about it pertain mostly to tone and then to a very specific casting choice, which of course is one of several elephants in the room with this movie. Right. Well, I will tell a little bit of my history with this movie, which is quite different from yours. So I loved this movie, loved, loved it when I first saw it. And like an 18-year-old, it was one of those movies that just resonated with you and it answers all of life's questions. And if only people would sit down and see this movie, they would understand, you know, everything you need to know about the world. (laughs) And it... There was something about it that so resembled the world of my experience. I, you know, was a closeted gay person at the time. Mm. And so I resonated with that element of it and also of the um, outward projection of success and of happiness when really people were not very successful or very happy. I think that is how I felt a lot of the time growing up in church And even in my family, you know, we're a pastor's family and you're polite and happy to people. But I felt in those days very sad and very lonely. And I think I really resonated with seeing that in what I thought was a really artistic and compelling way. Hmm. It also spoke to my sense of the sacred, which I wouldn't have called it that then. Um, But I was pretty disillusioned by church of my experience yet i felt a draw toward you know the reality of the divine spark and stuff and that there's a lot of beauty in the world and you have these connections with things that happen and they resonate deeply and at the time i wouldn't have been so bold as to call that god but i would now Mm -hmm. and i think that to see someone else articulating what i had only just sort of experienced for myself is much more real than the religious trappings of my experience up to that time meant a lot to me. Two elements of this movie that I would have dismissed, that I did dismiss as pretentious and and either hokey or just unfair or stupid back then, now I completely resonate with me. And that would be the kind of suburban uh, American phoniness. And then the kind of... Uh, navel gazing philosophizing of the west bentley character who i remembered being jared leto but it's west bentley uh the whole you know it's so beautiful plastic bag in the wind those were things that my kind of on top of the world uh straight white christian dude mind 
just didn't have time for these things. We had, you know, we had business to get to. So now I don't see things that way. And I, I really get that this, what this movie is, is getting at. Also, you kind of, it's such a nineties thing. I think that the only character in this movie who's in touch with reality is the teenage drug dealer. But, but again, these are things that now I look at it and I'm like, well, the things that are very obvious to me now about the way America works and the way the world works uh, are, are things that are on the tip of this movie's tongue, but I didn't, I wasn't allowed to to see them that way when I was younger. I want to talk about the tone a little bit because the first thing I was taking some notes watching it. And the first thing I wrote down during the first 10, 15 minutes was this is a cartoon. What do you think of that? Uh, I don't necessarily think it's a problem. I like it. It's just that this is a, it's an interesting tonal loaf, this movie. And I think it's very hard to carry off a balance. And I think they might've done it. I think this might be a successful example. Uh, I think of unsuccessful examples of tonal balance, like three billboards, the more recent uh, cold pursuit where you kind of have this farce element, but then you have this kind of hard nosed. It's like people want to do both kinds of Coen brothers stuff at the same time. They want to do the screwball and they want to do the dark nihilistic kind of noir. Um, and this movie has the, the, the intrigue and the, the mortality and, the, and that kind of stuff. But it also, I, honestly, the opening sequence, the narration from Kevin Spacey, and then the sequence where he kind of takes his life back those are almost to like Jim Carrey liar liar level with mm. how colorful and over the top and silly they are. And they're entertaining. I enjoyed it. I'm just uh, it's a movie that wants to go a lot of places and a lot of levels. And I guess that makes it ambitious. And that's why people admired it so much and still do. And it was so reined in in the in post-production I th- the original beginning and ending were a trial scene where Thor Birch and Wes Bentley are indicted and I think then convicted of uh, Kevin Spacey's murder. Hmm. And I and they're using as evidence that video clip that is now the beginning. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that we went on this ride, this cartoony ride where somehow we got to a place where this guy got shot in the head and he's laying there in blood and we're kind of like, that's really beautiful. Right. You know, this isn't, this isn't reality Yeah. to, to bring it back to reality that there are consequences for the things that happened and that two innocent kids are going to go to jail for life for something they didn't do is so depressing and cynical. And it completely turns any sort of romanticism or hope or enlivenment that we felt that by going on this journey, it, it throws it away. Sure, I think yeah. That would have been a huge mistake. Uh, for, that's another tone thing. Right, I think. right. I like that we kind of started in this world that's a, that is a fantasy that resembles our own. Right. But is not quite. I feel like I'm going to say that it's it's successful, but to me, the the business where where Lester finally dies, he's been you know the voiceover teaches teases his death the whole time, and then he when he finally dies, that whole sequence where he's uh, alone with the girl, and then he kind of thinks twice, and then he's looking happily. It it feels like that's the the movie kind of wanting its cake and eating it too, that he has to have this full arc and he has to have almost, almost a redemptive moment right before tragedy strikes. I think it pulls it off because of the kind of heightened tone, 
But I guess looking at it now structurally, that is a part that feels to me like it's walking a very, very fine line. Yeah, that scene um, with the seduction at the end is way more troubling to me today than it was, you know, in 1999 and when I was 18. Right. I would have defended it by saying, oh, but he did the right thing. He didn't do it. No, he did do it. You know, what, what what he did was doing it. And that somehow it was in that moment that he was able to see her humanity and not until then. Right. And I guess that also brings us to the elephant in the room, which is uh, Kevin Spacey playing the character. Like it's it's problematic enough in the writing. Uh, but before we even uh, obviously what's to say about Kevin Spacey, the canceled. But uh, you and I were were messaging a little bit while I was watching it. And before you even get to him as a problematic person, you have the role as written, which I think uh, has some spiky corners to it. But also, I was suggesting to you, I think that he is maybe not the best person to cast in this role. To me, it seemed more like uh, a William H. Macy type. I feel like there's too much charisma and smoothness with Kevin Spacey that the loser part doesn't quite play losery enough. And then when he kind of grabs his life by the, by the horns, I don't know it to me, I'm not sure that he is who I would plug into that role. I feel like the movie wants to have it both ways. Like there is that line, you know, both my wife and daughter think I'm this giant loser. I don't really see how he's a loser though. Yeah, They may not like him and they clearly, you know, he and his wife just have contempt for each other and he's a, bad father absent though present and spacey lays on so much irony in the opening narration and then especially in that first office sequence yeah that i'm thinking this first off this guy isn't real and second he's a complete asshole you could play those same lines like i can imagine william h macy doing it as a loser Mm -hmm. or bruce willis was another person considered i could imagine him being tired and world weary yeah, definitely you know not not as a loser necessarily and you could say those lines without any irony but then that's a very different movie there's there's ups and downs to to Spacey's obvious queerness right because it has to do with the dynamic with benning and with mina suvari where in a sense it almost seems safer like your gut tells you safer in that seduction scene right right because you you because we pick up that vibe even though it's still, you know, totally wrong. Yeah. Their their marriage makes a little bit of sense with that undercurrent, that this is why they kind of both have come to hate each other without telling why. I think that that could totally have been a mixed orientation marriage, and he still might have rejected Chris Cooper at that crucial moment mm-hmm. under those circumstances, but it would make the story make just as much sense if he were lusting after a young boy as a young girl. Yeah. Is it a cheat? Is the whole Chris Cooper character kind of a cheat for the movie? That he gets to embody so much, he gets to be kind of the angel of death and and swoop in, but also that his character has these kind of inherent, you know, conflicts. But he's just so he's very cartoonish and he's not he doesn't have a lot of screen time. He's not really like most people in this movie, he's not a real person, but he's barely a person. Yeah, it's two very different households right next to each other. And 
when you look at what goes on in their family and just what a shell of a person Alice and Janie has become, yeah, that's that's to me where the power of that family dynamic lies, mm-hmm. is in her just wonderful performance. I think that in a movie that's all about things not being what they seem, you know, the closeted gay guy is is pretty is laid on pretty thick. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it's needed for a divisive plot. It's needed to motivate this murder at the end. They need something. Right. And that's what it is. I don't see his um, his closeted sexuality as something to be explored. I think what you see is what you get with that. And ultimately, he's there to make the third act work. Well, Dan, how do you think American Beauty holds up? Does it hold up for you? And in what sense? It held up much better than I thought. So I had at the time, some personal triumph, like, oh, I loved this movie and I went to see it a ton of times and it won the Oscar, so I must be on to something. And as time has gone by, it's not, it doesn't hold up as well socially and the current cultural climate. And on Twitter, it's always at the top of everybody's, you know, five worst best picture winners. And so I've kind of come to second guess myself and be like, oh, maybe it was just of the moment and kind of a piece of fluff that in my desperate place in life at the time really hit home for me, but eh, it must not be very good. And then I watched it and I, I've totally fell in love with it again. I think that um, Spacey is a problematic choice, but he is who they chose. So he's that guy. Uh, my favorite performance in the movie is Annette Bennings. People kind of think she's too much of a cartoon, but I just think about how hard it must have been to have found what she found. She brings a lot of strength and courage to that performance and some vulnerability where there wouldn't need to be. Yeah. I think the kids are great. I think the screenplay as shot moves by so quickly. I feel like however long it is, two hours just flies. Mm-hmm. And it introduced the world to Alan Ball, you know, previous um, right. to six feet under, etc. It was kind of a new way of, of movies being in the yeah. 2000s. I feel like the way the score was too was new and fresh yeah, and different. Definitely. And I think that speaks to some of my feelings about American Beauty. So I you know I'm revisiting it but I'm really visiting it fresh uh allowing myself to be honest about it and look at it with uh 40 plus year old Josh eyes. And I if I contextualize it like that, I think if American Beauty came out today it, I would, I might put it in that category of three billboards or something because it's, it's, it's ground that has been covered so much. It, it is uh, a little bit reckless with some problematic things, but if I look back to 1999 and I think about what it represented in that context, uh, I still have a lot of questions about it, but it's undeniably got something to say is a, is a big swing is a uh, very entertaining movie. And uh, in that sense, I think it holds up. This is a two holds up movie. All right. Right here. You know, I couldn't believe it. From the opening narration, I'm 42 years old. He said, I know. I I felt so depressed (laughs) because he might as well have been 65 from where I was sitting when I first saw it. I'm just like, oh, man, I'm almost there. That's just a constant thing is finding out people that I thought, you know, were so old and grown up in movies were supposed to be 39 or something crazy like that, or that all the, right. all the people on the podcasts I like are like 28. And I'm like, they're children. 
Oh, I know. I was incredulous. I'm like on Google, like Kevin Spacey birthday, Annette Benning birthday. And I was just like, oh my gosh, they're like now my peers. And I look at them now. I'm just like, oh, they're so old. And this just wasn't that long ago. Right. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people don't enjoy movies about uh, irredeemable characters. And it bothers them Mm -hmm. when movies are about people who seem... Uh, unredeemable or who don't have those redeeming qualities and i don't this is a good movie good test movie for that for me a movie just needs to have something to say and to say it artfully i don't require redemption i don't require uh good people i i like a movie where goodness shines through i like a movie where there is redemption but if if that's got to be the story that they're telling it all comes down to what is being said and how it's being said I think it's also very much through Lester's lens. Even though he doesn't have an omniscient point of view, I almost feel like the movie is presented as if we're watching his version of what he figures events must have been. Right. When I think of Annette Benny's character, Carolyn, I have a lot more sympathy for her than I did 20 years ago. I think, you know, if we're going to read between the lines, she talks about how she grew up in a duplex and she seems to be ashamed of that. And when I think of real estate, that's a field you can get into um, just because you went to some classes and got licensed and you worked really hard and had some luck. And that is a route to upward mobility if you didn't have a lot of advantages. And I almost wonder if that's where she's coming from. Mm -hmm. And she's trying to make a good life for her family. Right. And that's admirable. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like Kevin Spacey or, you know, Lester has been a good partner to her in that, though they do have a nice house and a nice life. It's been at the cost of whatever spark they originally had. And she's gotten some security, but that's about it. And I feel like she seems regretful and she seems vulnerable about that. You know, at the end, I don't know what she thought she was doing with that gun in the car. That's another yes. thing that it's, feels it's, like it's written because it needs to d- misdirect you. It doesn't, you know, it feels like it comes from a writer more than it comes from inside that character. I think that that's a, exactly. And I think that that's a sign. As also the closing narration where it goes back and forth between what he is envisioning in death to the moment of being shot to vindicate character by character that they weren't there. Like it's the kids in the bed hearing the gunshot and then Angela in the bathroom hearing the gunshot. Yeah. Carolyn outside hearing the gunshot because this was originally a whodunit that is now extricated. What an interesting choice because that's such a, even though you're right and it would be incredibly grim and depressing, it's also an easier structure to hang a movie on. So to make that decision after shooting, while shooting, editing to. uh... It was, yeah, it was after and they just wanted to get rid of some of it, but then Alan Ball was really unhappy and so he he agreed that he liked it better to get rid of all of it rather right. than to cut part of it. Well, it paid off. Yeah, and I feel like it unleashed the movie to go to a really beautiful place that was sort of dark in and menacing. It's creepy in the beginning that that first video, yeah. and then with, that he's standing outside filming, and we don't know who this person right, is. Right. Right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us this week. We have been Dan and Josh. You can follow both of us on Twitter and Letterboxd. Our music is by Jonah Rapino. 
and we will see you next week when we'll talk about some different movies. See ya. Bye. So like like maybe like a bank holdup like some something like a a robbery. This is a this is a stick up. <laughs> oh, the whole time hold I wasn't like, tracking with you like, there. Of whole, yeah. <laughs> then maybe it's oh. not a good idea. <laughs> that even when <Right>. explained. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll hard. spend some time with it and see what I come up with. But all right, the end of this one will suck. Yeah, well, don't spend too much time in case we change yeah, your mind and right. go in a different direction. <laughs> We're going to get a... We are now the Sticky Bandits. <laughs> addicted to rebranding our podcast <laughs> before it even has an audience. Maybe that's our thing. That's kind of yeah. meta. It's like, we're the rebranders. Because really, Every once you have the feed, you're there. It's not like they're going to lose us. It's almost like it gets exciting right. to turn on your right. app and find out what... What am I subscribed what's to this the, week? What's the focus today? Right. <laughs> <laughs>